Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. I want to tell you about one of my favorite toys of all time, but especially when I was young, was Legos. Is anyone else a Lego fan? I, I think that I would be a Lego fanatic. Um, there's something about getting a new Lego set, and you, just, you open the box, and you pull out all the little pieces, and you, you see the instructions, and then you follow the instructions, and at the end of the grueling process sometimes, and your fingers are, are sore if it's a large piece, but then you hold in your hands the thing that's on the front of the box, and it's just so cool. And I remember that not only did I like making the new sets, but I think actually more than that, I liked even more when I would take it apart and I would add it to the trunk of Legos that my brother and I had. My mom was very, uh, she was very frugal, and she used to go to all the garage sales she could anytime we were home here in the States, and she amassed quite a collection of just generic Legos from us from garage sales. And so we still, in my garage, Megan can tell you, she's very annoyed at the very huge trunk of Legos that I'm, I'm saying, but wait, our kids, it's one day will be old enough, you know, to have these Legos. And, and the best part of a big old trunk of Legos is then you can just dump it out and have this pile of Legos. And then you get to comb through all the Legos and find different pieces and make your own things just out of the imagination in your mind and create different scenes. And me and my brother, we would spend hours combing through these Legos and creating pirate ships that flew through space and creating downtown scenes where dinosaurs and monkeys were loose. And we'd create these dense jungles that opened up to this beachside resort like Vista, you know? And, and the, the scuba divers would be out there and they wouldn't see the sharks coming. And we'd just create these incredible scenes because I was always inspired by the dioramas in the Lego store where it looked like the guys were mid-run, you know? Or they'd be like, in the middle of a sword fight. And so I would set, spend hours creating these little scenes, and then I would sit back and just marvel at what I had created. And I was so proud of this accomplishment and how cool it looked. And I would just I would take pictures of it because I wanted, to, I wanted to memorialize this moment of this cool, uh, creative piece of my mind out in the world. And maybe you've experienced this at some point in your life. The, the, the thing I'm talking about is where you sit back and marvel at what you've done. Maybe for you, it's sitting back and marveling at your beautifully crisscross patterned lawn that you've got in the diamond shape cut. Maybe you sit back and marvel at just the array of cupcakes as they sit glistening and decorated for the party. It's a sense of accomplishment, right? And you want to memorialize it somehow. You want to preserve the record of what you've completed so that you can return to this feeling of success whenever you want. Now, today's Jesus story is going to look at this very natural instinct that humans have to create memorials to our achievements. And so we have to ask, is this compatible with a relationship to Jesus? 
Or is there something more that Jesus invites us into? And so with that, let's read together from Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 26 through 36. It reads, About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice from the cloud came, saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our passage starts with the phrase, about eight days after Jesus said this, which causes us to ask, after Jesus said what? And so maybe you'll remember with me in last week's passage, Pastor Chris took us through the story where Jesus' disciples make a connection that Jesus is actually the Messiah. Like he's actually the king and savior that Israel has been waiting for. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a healer and a miracle worker. He's not just a prophet. He's actually the Messiah. But the problem is they still have an image in their minds as to what that means. And so Jesus continues the process of revealing himself to them. He has to show them that the way that he has come to save and lead them is different than their preconceptions of conquering and fighting and winning and leading and ruling. See, Jesus' way is the way of self-giving sacrifice and love. And anyone who wants to follow him and experience this abundant life that he's offering will learn to live in the same downward, self-giving, sacrificial way. So about eight days after Jesus said that, he takes his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, and they go away for some private prayer time. Now, one thing that we should note is any time that Luke brings special attention to Jesus going away for prayer, it's usually a transition point in Jesus' ministry. It's Luke highlighting, hey, this is a fulcrum moment as Jesus steps into the next phase of his ministry. So this story is the transition moment from Jesus' time of spreading the good news of Jesus of God's inbreaking kingdom, shown in the miracles that restore and reconcile people and communities, and it's turning now to Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Okay? So while Jesus is praying, and while the disciples are pretending are apparently pretending to pray, but really they're just falling asleep, there's a transformation that occurs, and Jesus's appearance changes. Now, that's where we get the name for this section, the transfiguration. Now, it's not the nature of Jesus that transforms. It's not the transformation. Jesus doesn't change, but it's rather his appearance that transforms. 
His face changes somehow. His clothes become dazzling white. And we have to remember how uncommon it was in the ancient world to see brilliantly bleached clothing, right? Like you never saw anything pure white for that matter. So the only ones who could afford to completely clean away all the dust and dirt from normal everyday life were royalty and the exceedingly rich. And so throughout the Gospel of Luke and Luke's next book, Acts, he uses clothes as a signifier of status. So when he describes these dazzling clothes, it's meant to make us realize that they're the result of heavenly glory being revealed. See, in fact, in Jewish traditional thought in the Old Testament and in the first century, your countenance, your your demeanor, uh, the way that you present yourself to others through your appearance and through your personality, that is supposed to be a mirror to your heart. So if you dress to be intimidating and you always seem angry or standoffish, then people would assume that that is revealing your inward character. On the other hand, if you dress and act seductively or flashy to draw attention, then people would make assumptions about your character based on that. And we still do that today, don't we? Right? Like our first impression of who someone is like, it's all based on their appearance and their demeanor. And in the church, we look for things like how people demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit to make a judgment call on the relationship with God. So if someone is constantly impatient or demeaning, well, then we we might assume that their faith and their submission to God is maybe in a different state than someone who's humble and compassionate. So in Jesus' day, people felt the same way. And so this description of Jesus' appearance, of his appearance changing, it's a description from the disciples' point of view. It's how they see how Jesus' inner being was being made even more transparent to Peter, James, and John. See, Jesus had just spent a couple years with his disciples, revealing to them what God is like through his actions and through his teaching. But now he's fully revealing the character of God through even his countenance. But before Peter, James, and John can even comprehend what they're seeing, they suddenly see two companions with Jesus. It's Moses and Elijah, giants of the Jewish faith, pillars of the Old Testament, Together, they represent the law and the prophets that Jesus has mentioned multiple times that he has come to fulfill and bring to completion. See, Moses is traditionally thought of as the author of the first five books of the Jewish scriptures, the Torah, the law. He's the one, if you remember, he's rescued from death as a baby. He was graciously raised in the palace of the Pharaoh. But then he has a fall from grace when he murders a man and then runs away. But God chooses to restore him and use him as a humble leader to lead his people out of slavery, the Exodus, where Israel is brought out of their state of oppression and brought into a new life in the promised land. Now, Elijah is one of the most famous prophets who worked to call God's people away from Baal worship and back to faithful worship of Yahweh. He's also one of only two men in the Old Testament who didn't die but instead he was whisked away by God in a chariot of fire, leaving behind the mantle of carrying on his work with his disciple, Elisha. See, these are the two people who appear in glorious splendor with Jesus. 
They're manifesting the same dazzling appearance, the same weighty presence that comes with the presence of God. And they're talking with Jesus about his departure, which he is about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Now, some translations actually say that they are speaking with him about his death, which he is about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. But the actual Greek word used by Luke is exodus, the exodus. And that's where we get the word departure from. And that shows that what Jesus is about to do in Jerusalem is actually the moment that God fulfills his plan of rescue and recommissioning. Jesus completes the exodus of bringing people from the oppression of sin and death into new, abundant life under the kingship of God. And it's also the recommissioning of his people to live a new life, not serving their old ways of self and power, but serving God's ways of service and sacrifice and compassion and healing. So Moses and Elijah are standing there with Jesus. They're discussing the exodus that he's about to complete, and they're saving people from death. I think that's my microphone, you guys. I'm sorry. I'm going to use this one instead. Peter, James, and John are now fully awake, amazed at the brightly shining scene in front of them. And even though they spent a few years with Jesus, they've seen him do incredible things. They've joined him on incredible projects. But it's as if they're seeing him for the first time. But this transfiguration doesn't discount all that came before. It still takes all that they've seen and all that they've learned about Jesus, and it points forward to what he's still yet to do. It's as if Jesus is saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. And just as Jesus' two companions are about to leave, Peter, he starts to fumble with his words. See, our text tells us that he didn't know what he was saying, or it could be translated, he didn't know what else to say. See, Peter's the one who can never seem to just let an open moment lie, like he gets uncomfortable with open space and he has to fill it with his own words. Does anyone else know anyone like that? If you don't know someone like that, that means it's you. <laughs> I can say that because it's me. Megan will tell you. See, I don't know if that's exactly what's happening with Peter, if he's just getting uncomfortable filling the space with his own voice. Oh, master, wouldn't it be good to do this? But he's responding to the scene that he's witnessing, right? It's these brilliant, godlike figures. They're gathered together. And in the ancient world, deities were thought to need physical shelters wherever they manifested. So there's something special about this place. So humans are supposed to build a shrine of some sort to memorialize the moment, to continue to experience what had happened. So their acts of worship, by, by building the memorial and then showing up to it regularly for worship services, that's meant to help connect them to that transcendent thing that had happened there. So Peter, he's just operating out of the context that he's grown up in. See, something incredible has happened, something inexplicable, Something from God. So, let's build a shrine. And maybe we can capture a fraction of that glory and power. Maybe that will make God happy. To celebrate the thing that he did by memorializing it. And this isn't just Peter's reaction. Like, this is a human tendency, right? We have an obsession with more memorializing the past. And there is an aspect 
of that that is good and right, right? Like it's good to remember the past. It's good to learn from what happened before so that we can build upon that and build upon those who came before us so that we can learn from those mistakes that have already happened as we move forward into the future. And memorials, they, they do. They, they keep us rooted in big moments, right? They, they remind us that our whole life experience isn't just dictated by however, however our emotional state is on a certain day. So we celebrate birthdays and anniversaries to be reminded of the gift of people and the relationships that we have with them. See, people celebrate milestones of how long they've been uh, at a job or how far they've come since beating an addiction. And we memorialize things in our society so that we don't fall into the arrogance of thinking that our personal experience of life is the only one or even the most important one. So that's why we remember the generations who've come before us so that we can be grateful for the sacrifices and the steps that they made to make our life possible. We celebrate our ancestors who who moved to a new country or who broke uh, a generational uh, tradition of, of debt or addiction. Wow, I'm so grateful that my grandpa changed that in our family because of what I experience now. And so we celebrate the people who laid the foundations of our church or who helped us establish our family's connection to an area. These are good. But the shadow side of that comes with the memorializing that it places us in the position of control. And it postures us looking at the past. See, we like to memorialize things because it gives us a sense of accomplishment. We get to sit back and go, look at what we've done. It gives us a sense of completion. Make us feel like we don't have to keep pressing forward because look at how far we've come. Life is good here. So let's remember that big moment and give it our attention and our thanks, but, you know, only on the few moments, the few occasions that we gather to celebrate it. But then the rest of our, our time is ours. We can go back to our life the way that we want. See, building shrines helps us keep God in a box. Isn't God so great? Look at all the amazing things that he's done and impact my life. But then we close our time of worship and we go back to the rest of our life, leaving God behind in a safe little shelter that we created for him. That way we know where he is when we need him. Our life is good enough most of the time, so whenever it isn't, that's when we know where to find God. But see, Jesus came to declare and reveal the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of good enough. And Peter's reaction to try and build a shrine, to try and build a memorial, means that he doesn't fully get it yet. Even though in the last passage that Pastor Chris talked about last week, they all realize and confess Jesus as the Messiah, Peter, in our passage, did you see it? He still calls him Master. He doesn't understand what's going on. He doesn't understand Jesus. So he reverts to the categories and the boxes that he knew before so that he can have some semblance of knowing what's going on. And so when I think of that for me in my life, I do the same thing. That's why I love to think of Jesus as a Savior. Do you love to think of Jesus as a Savior? We love to think of Jesus as a Savior because we know what Saviors are. All of us at some point have needed saving. Maybe you were stuck in a tree as a kid. Maybe you just couldn't quite tie that shoe and it was really frustrating and he needed saving. Maybe you were stuck on the side of a road 
with a flat tire and you needed saving. And so we know what saviors are. When we're in trouble, we call out to them and they come and save us. But then they help us get back on the path that we were on before and we get to move on with our life. And so we thank our Savior. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you. And then we step forward, leaving them in the past. I mean, I don't need them anymore. They saved me. Now I can keep doing my life. Sometimes we even remember them fondly, right? We memorialize them in stories that we tell to our friends and family. Man, that tow truck driver was just the best, wasn't he? And we treat Jesus the same way. We want a memorial to celebrate. So we come to this place. We sing songs. We pray at the rail. We want a memorial to celebrate, to make us feel good, to get the sense of completion and achievement. But Jesus doesn't give us a memorial. He gives us a mission to join him on. He looks at us and says, you think being saved was good? You ain't seen nothing yet. And that's the moment that we find Peter in as he's blabbering away about building shelters for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. It's my favorite moment in this passage, right? Like Peter is talking about his plan to build something that they can gather at. And then the full glory and presence of God appears as a cloud and envelops them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. You could feel something different. Peter is blabbering away and God just shuts him up. And then he says, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is the only one standing there, making it very clear to the disciples who exactly this voice was referring to. Jesus is the son, the chosen one. And the one thing that the voice of God has commanded them to do is not to build a memorial, not to create an event to worship Jesus, but to listen to him. See, when I first read this passage, the one thing that stuck out to me, one of the things that stuck out to me, was how quickly Peter wanted to respond to this incredible scene he witnessed, right? Like, that's good, right? Like, you, you see, there's Jesus. He's shining brighter than anything we've ever seen. And there's Moses, the great patriarch. There's Elijah, the great prophet. So I want to respond. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm motivated to respond. Let's build them three shelters, one for each of them. And Peter's desire to respond was right on. But the way that he was responding showed that he didn't fully understand what Jesus was doing or who Jesus was. He was putting Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah, who were just men used by God. But Jesus is more than we think. And following Jesus involves more than we can give. See, Jesus wanted, or Peter wanted to place Jesus alongside the others. And we do the same thing, don't we? We love Jesus. We honor Jesus. We worship Jesus, and then we place him alongside the other important things in our life. Like we put him in his own little special booth, right next to the booths for friends and family. Right next to the booth for our financial goals. He's right there in his own special shrine, next to the shrine we have for our political ideals and our philosophical values 
and our pursuit for influence and security. We give him his very own box on our to-do list, like if you're a to-do list person, oh, we, we put down, have my quiet time, on its own little box, next to all the other priorities we have for the day. And when we treat Jesus as one of the parts of our life, it downgrades the depth of our discipleship to him. When we view Jesus as, as a great teacher to learn from, or, or as a savior to worship, well, it's easy to make our faith a part of our life. It's easy to just keep it relegated to Sunday. Yep, that was great. I did the faith thing. Now, where's brunch? See, that's why we love to build a memorial to Jesus. Because we subconsciously think that God is there. He's there in that chair that I have my Bible time. He's there in the car, which is where I love to do my prayer when I'm on my commute. He's there in the church building. He's there at the Bible study. He's there on the music playlist. And we get to decide when we want to go to him and when we want to leave him behind in his little box. But here's the difference between law and gospel. Lutherans love to talk about law and gospel. So when our faith is based on the law, we make our faith about how well we are following Jesus. How well are we showing up on a weekly basis? How well are we doing the works that we're supposed to do? But no wonder we go through seasons of feeling super disconnected to God. Like, no wonder we have seasons where we don't know where God is because we can't feel him anymore. Because when our faith is about the things that we have built, but then the building isn't as full as it used to be. Or our friends that we grew really close to aren't around as much anymore. Well, then it doesn't feel as real or as powerful anymore. See, when our faith is about all the times that we're doing stuff for Jesus and we felt super pumped up, well, then our faith rises and falls depending on how we feel. Making Jesus one part of our life puts the control back in our hands, but it also puts the pressure on us as well to keep our faith going. That's called law. And it actually keeps us separated from the restoration life that Jesus offers in this kingdom of God. But here's the gospel. Here's the good news. Jesus is more than we think. And following him involves more than we can give. The good news is that Jesus looks at what we built, looks at all the ways that we followed him, and he says, well, you ain't seen nothing yet. See, you think you know Jesus? You ain't seen nothing yet. His grace is bigger than you can imagine because you're not done needing it. And he's going to keep giving it to you. You think Jesus is a good teacher? Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. He's actually the king. And his influence has the power to free you from bondage, not just teach you how to live better. You think he's a good savior? Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. His rescue is actually healing and restoration. He doesn't just pull us out of danger. He transforms darkness and brokenness into beauty and light. You think he's done great things in your life? You think he's done great things in our church? Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. His plans are still going. 
He's still inviting us to join him on mission every single day to take part in his work of of restoration and reconciliation. And so we don't just gather to remember what he has done and then go back to our lives with a new burden that, hey, we better try and live better because of all the cool things that he's done. That's law. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is his grace. And just when we think that we've received his grace, Jesus says, you ain't seen nothing yet and offers us his grace again and again, showing us that the life of forgiveness and gratitude is one that we get to experience and one that we get to share with others. Isn't that good news? Like, to me, it feels like such better news than the idea of making my faith about whether or not I've gotten a good attendance record this year. But I also don't want us to get, like, pumped up right now and then respond like Peter by going out of here and trying to do a bunch of stuff just because we heard an encouraging message. I don't want us to miss the important command that God gives as the response to the revelation of who Jesus is. It's right there at the end. He says, this is my son. Listen to him. See, grace is a gift that's to be received. And when we receive it, it takes root in our heart and begins to grow and produce fruit in our lives. But grace isn't a thing that's given to us through our attendance at church services. The word of God that grows into the kingdom life that Jesus offers isn't just something that we get once a week when someone stands up here and talks at you. We can't have our experience with God mediated through sermons. We can't have our experience with God only through Bible studies or other things we normally think of when we think of church. And here's why. It's too easy, and I know this because I've done it when I've been sitting right there, it's too easy to sit back from the sermon or sit back from the Bible study and then critique it at arm's length. Eh, pastor's a little off today. Uh, We've done this curriculum before. It was better last time. Right? We get to critique it at arm's length, and then we decide its merits on whether or not it speaks to us. Yeah, it just didn't really speak to me this morning. Like he was up there and he was excitable. Maybe he had too much coffee, but just, I don't know. It didn't speak to me today. And then we're right back at the same spot where our faith, our experience with God is based on how we feel on any given day. But if Jesus is truly God, and if he's truly offering a way of life that brings wholeness and beauty to the whole of creation, then our discipleship to him can't just be in the box that we encounter when we feel like it. That's never going to allow us to accept his invitation of daily stepping into the wonder of his restoration life. So, if we are supposed to respond, if we are supposed to do something, what, what should we do, maybe? Well, the thing I want to do, and I've been trying to do this last week, is follow the voice of God that told Peter, listen to him. I think we need to develop a desire to meet with God daily. We need to develop our ear to hear from him. So I want to challenge you to something. I want to challenge you to commit to something. I want to challenge you to commit 
to listening prayer every day this week. And then write down what you hear. Now, our Grace family is full of good Lutherans, which means that we might not really know what I mean by listening prayer. And some of you had the goose flesh on the back of your neck go, what is he talking about? See, things that are experiential or subjective, sometimes not taught. And so, therefore, they can sometimes seem untrustworthy. But we don't need to be intimidated by this. Listening prayer is just that. It's listening in prayer. It's talking to God in prayer and then stopping to listen. Not stopping to move on with your day, but stopping to listen rather than just filling all the space with our voice. And so this is a practice that I've actually really struggled with for many, many years. So I've had to do a lot of research and I've had to do a lot of practice And that doesn't mean that I'm any further along the journey. It just means that I've gathered lots of resources to help me as I struggle with it. So if any of you want any resources, let me know. I'd be happy to send them your way. Um, But here's one simple example that I think we might be able to get started on. So this is the thing I'm challenging you to commit to, okay? It's called interactive gratitude. Interactive gratitude. The process is simple. All you do is think of a few things that you're grateful for. Maybe no more than three. And you write them down. Maybe it's helpful for you what I like to do. I like to write it like a letter. I go, dear God, I'm grateful for dot, 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 and then whatever comes to my mind. But maybe writing out a full letter isn't how your brain works. Megan prefers to write in bullet points. And so you might just write them in a bullet list. That's fine too. But the important step comes next. That's us talking to God. Dear God, I'm thankful for these things. Then we stop and then we listen. And we ask God how he wants to respond to our gratitude. So you read your list. And then you write down how God would answer you. So maybe you said, God, I'm grateful for the beautiful weather today. And then as you consider how God might answer you, you write down, dear child, I'm glad you slowed down enough to enjoy the weather today. It's one of the small gifts I was happy to give you. Or maybe with your bullet point list, you had the word lunch on it because you had a good lunch with friends and you're grateful for that. And so as you consider how God might respond to your gratitude, you write down a second bullet point under that that just says, relationships are a gift. Food creates memories because we're reflecting on the fact that God uses simple things like meals to strengthen the bonds between people. And it can be as simple as that listening to God in prayer and asking him to respond to your thoughts, writing down the impressions that you get. And at the end of the week, I wonder if your desire to connect with God has grown. I wonder if your ability to hear his voice in your everyday has strengthened. But there's one big red flag that I haven't talked about, right? The big red flag. How do I know if what I'm hearing is God and that I'm not just making all this stuff up? And that's a great question. And it's a very real consideration. But there's one step from our text that I actually haven't looked at yet because the English translation doesn't make it clear to us. When the voice of God speaks from the cloud saying, listen to him, the verb for listen is a, all the English teachers are going to understand this, it's a second person plural verb. The way you could translate that instead of listen to him, it's Y'all listen to him. It's not individual. It's listen to him. Listening to God. Following Jesus. 
It was never meant to be a personal activity that we do in private. We're meant to follow Jesus in community. And we're commanded to listen to him in community as well. So that means that we get to share what we hear from God. See, not only is this a good way to encourage others, but it's a great way to practice humble submission to our community to help us discern if it's God actually speaking to us. And so when we invite others into the process, it helps us say, I'm not sure if this was God or maybe my overactive imagination, but I'm leaning on the family of God to help me discern. See, Megan and I have done this from time to time with each other. So I might write down some things I'm grateful for, and then I prayerfully consider how God would respond to that, you know, if he's, as if he was sitting across from me and speaking. And I'll just write that down. And then I'll share it with Megan, maybe later, maybe a week later, maybe right then. Or I'll share it with someone else that I trust. And there's no big expectations with what I'm sharing, right? Like, I'm not writing the gospel according to Drew. We're not writing down our own book of the Bible. Oh, we got it from God. No, we're just saying, God, I'm grateful for these things. And then we imagine, you know, what if God was a good father that enjoyed being with us, his child? What if we as his child said, thank you for this, and he as a father said, here's how to respond. It usually leads to a moment of reflection and gratitude as Megan and I share with that. As she goes, yeah, that does sound like if God was a compassionate king or a good father. But it increases our faith. It increases our gratitude. It makes us easier for us to spot him at work in the future. It increases my desire to learn from him more and to listen to him more and more. And so that's why I want to encourage you to do that this week. Commit to listening prayer every day. Pick a time that works for you and then write down what you learn. Because Jesus is more than we think. And the life he offers is more than we have experienced. The grace he gives is bigger than we know. The plans he has for us are still in process. And we haven't seen nothing yet. That's good news. Amen? If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.